Welcome to the 363rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with author Alexandra Oliva, author of the new novel, Forget Me Not. Stay tuned for the interview. And stay tuned after the interview for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Forget Me Not. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today, my guest today is Alexandra Oliva, author of the new novel, Forget Me Not. Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your novel, Forget Me Not, yet, how would you describe the novel? Um, Forget Me Not is a near-future suspense novel about... Uh, a woman who grew up essentially feral. She was completely isolated and neglected on this walled off rural property. And when she broke out of this confinement at age 12, she became um, a social media sensation in all the worst ways. Uh, And then as an adult, she's living in Seattle and she's very isolated and anxious and just lives in fear that people will recognize who she is and bring bring her back into the public eye. Um, And a new neighbor introduces her to virtual reality and the escapism that that can provide. And she kind of retreats into VR as a way of avoiding, you know, all her fears uh, of the real world. But then her childhood home goes up in flames and there's this, cascade of events that force her to uh, confront the truths of her past in a very hands-on way. And do you remember the original impetus or idea that led you to write Forget Me Not? Yeah. um, So with my first novel, the last one, I had to do a a lot of research into how memory works and how memories evolve. Um, And I just learned so much fascinating stuff while doing that research. And I was only able to incorporate a little of it into that novel. So I knew I wanted my next book to be a real deep dive into the fallibility and malleability of memory. So that was kind of uh, where the idea for this book started, because so much of it revolves around 
uh, this woman's memories of her childhood and what may or may not be true about those memories. Um, and then in order to write kind of the, the modern day or near future narrative, um, I started learning a lot about virtual reality and I just really wanted to have um, a plot that kind of incorporated trends that I was seeing in social media and the effects of becoming the focus of um, memification or becoming the focus of, you know, the social media mob and how that might affect somebody who is just really isolated and anxious. And I wanted to have all these ideas kind of play off each other. And so what was your writing journey that led you to writing your first novel, the last one? Uh, my writing journey for the first novel was I was working on a different novel, um, something I now refer to as practice novel two, when I had the idea for the last one. And I started it as a short story while I was trying to find representation for the other project I was working on. And then at some point, I just dove into the last one, and I knew it was going to be my next novel, and I was never able to sell the one that came before. So um, it was this process of working on the last one while trying to find representation for something that wasn't actually good enough to be published, and then eventually putting that other novel aside and focusing on the last one, and everything just kind of clicked there, and that one became my debut novel. And had you written prior to that practice novel number two? or well, there was a practice it? novel number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I graduated from college in 2005, and I was watching a lot of my friends go into uh, graduate school or banking or, you know, various jobs. And the only thing I wanted to do, to do was to write. Um, so as soon as I graduated, I kind of, you know, declared myself a writer and I traveled a little bit and I took waitressing jobs and, you know, odds and ends here and was just focused on writing from the get-go. Um, so I, I wrote one novel, couldn't find representation for it, wrote another novel, got an MFA, couldn't find representation for that novel. And then it was, yeah, the third novel that became my debut. And that was about uh, 10 years that whole journey took between graduating college and, and when the last one came out. And so what was your MFA experience like? Uh, it was mixed. It was, I mean, it was a good experience because I found some of my closest writing friends and we still exchange work to this day. So like I've gotten some really solid relationships out of it. Um, and I was exposed to some more experimental books that I never would have read on my own through that program. And I think that process helped me find my voice. Um, it was also discouraging sometimes. Um, my writing has some speculative elements to it. And, you know, I got some pushback about being too genre um, when I was in my MFA program, which was frustrating at times. Um, so, you know, it was it was a mixed experience. I'm glad I did it. I think for me, the the pros outweighed the cons. But I'm also glad that, you know, I had, I think, three or four years between college and getting my MFA. And I think that for me, that was key because I went into my MFA program kind of knowing what I wanted to get out of it. I had a full manuscript and I knew it wasn't strong enough to get published, but I didn't know why. So I was really focused on kind of identifying the weaknesses of my writing and building that community of, of writers. 
And and so what was that process like for you? What did, if it's possible for you to articulate, what did you identify from that manuscript? You said that it wasn't publishable and you weren't sure why. What, what did you try to figure, what did you figure out? Um, I figured out that I had a tendency to really over narrate like physical movement. It seems like such a weird thing to say, but it would be like on a page I could have, she smiled, she tilted her head, she looked over here, she did. And then just like <laughs> so many unnecessary um, yeah, explanations of tiny little movements or, that were just filling up the page without really adding anything. Um, similarly, I have this tendency, I think, to um, write the same thing multiple ways as I'm trying to figure out the best way to say it. Um, so I'll have like three sentences in a row that are essentially like, I don't know. She looked out the window and was sad. Looking out the window, she saw some the way the tree was hanging made her, you know, just a bunch of different ways of saying the same thing. And I used to leave it all in there. And now I know I have to go back and, you know, kind of hone those sentences, cut them down, find the best possible way to say the thing I want to say. Um, so I'd say my MFA experience really kind of made me realize how important pacing is and how to kind of cut down those unnecessary and or repetitive beats in my writing. And I'm, I'm curious, what, what was it that originally you said that you graduated college and you declared that you were going to be a writer? What was the original um, kind of spark for you? Were you writing as a kid? Um, were you, were you writing in college? What, what was it that, that kind of originally, originally sparked your interest in like, I'm, I'm going to write a novel or I'm going to try to. Oh, I, as long as I can remember, like I just, I remember in second grade getting my hands on like Terry Brooks fantasy novels and, you know, these science fiction novels that were just so far ahead of my, you know, reading level and just being totally absorbed in them and just wanting to contribute to the world of books. Um, I remember in fourth grade, a friend and a friend of mine and I got permission to like go work on a novel in the class uh, reading nook during free writing time and how we like stapled pages of paper together to make it look like a novel. And um, yeah, just as long as I can remember, I've been really interested in writing. Like I think in elementary and middle school and even high school, if you ask me what I want to be when I grew up, it was always... I want to be a writer and a lawyer. I want to be a writer and a genetic engineer for SETI. I want to be a writer and a politician. And it was always a writer and. And I think there was something about graduating from college and kind of moving forward into adulthood that I kind of dropped the and. I realized like there was nothing that interested me as much as being a writer did and that I really want to focus on that. Well, given that, and, and as you just described, uh, reading Terry Brooks in second grade and then uh, writing this novel in the in the reading nook, I'm curious, do you remember the first time that you saw your first novel in the bookstore? What was that experience like? Oh, uh, it was crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, a couple of my memories are kind of melding together and I... I think it was a Barnes and Noble. I want because I keep wanting to say it was my local bookstore, but but my local bookstore didn't open until my my debut novel was out in paperback, so it wasn't there. <laughs> um, so I think it was the Barnes and Noble um, a few a few minutes away, and just kind of walking in and seeing it on that front table of new releases, and 
it was just surreal. Um, I even had this moment the other day where I just like looked over at uh, my bookshelf and was like, wait, I wrote that. Like I'm a published <laughs> author and that's my book sitting there. And the second one is about to come out. And it was just. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early. So everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know, such a surreal feeling. Yeah, that's great. Well, you mentioned in your MFA program that you uh, did get some pushback about genre. How did you deal with that? <laughs> not, not well. <laughs> Um, I think like kind of the key to my becoming a successful writer has been to learn how to interpret feedback and um, find a way to, you know, parse it, to find a way to make my my writing stronger. And some of that initial feedback, you know, um, my hackles got raised, right? You're not looking for why they're objecting to your writing. You're just hearing kind of them saying no, them saying this isn't good enough. Um, and kind of my my takeaway eventually was that even though I was I was trying to do something different with my writing something like kind of take more speculative elements and ground them in reality that wasn't coming through I wasn't doing it um strongly enough and I really needed to focus on what about my approach to these kind of genre tinted ideas was a little bit different and and uniquely my own and just find ways to focus on that and make that aspect of my writing shine through. Got it. So what was your writing process when you were working on Forget Me Not? Do, do you outline extensively when you're working on a novel, or are you more of an organic writer? I don't outline very much. Um, it means I have to rewrite a lot, but my, my process is very exploratory. Um, I do take a lot of notes um, and you know, I have, I jot down a lot of ideas, um, but they're not very organized. I tend to have a lot of post-it notes spread all over my office. And then I have to kind of gather them up and organize them and put them into notebooks to figure things out. Um, and with Forget Me Not in particular, it took me a long time to figure out the present day um, plot. I, I kept getting, I kept trying to start this book in the main character's childhood um, I think I spent about a year reworking the opening pages and just trying to find a foothold into the story before I really realized that I wasn't interested in her as a child. I was interested in the like maladjusted adult that she would become after having such a, a messed up childhood. And especially if I was so focused on memory, like I couldn't explore the memories of the child in real time. It had to be her as an adult looking back. Um, and once I kind of figured that out and figured out how I was going to incorporate virtual reality and all the modern day or near future elements into the story, things kind of took off from there. But even so, I you know figured out so much on the page as I was writing this book. Um, and it was, you know, the first draft was a mess and all like kind of the magic comes from revision with me um, and taking out elements and figuring out how to reveal things. Um, you know, there's, there was a lot of reordering and reorganizing and rewriting um, 
which, you know, is, is time consuming, but it's just kind of how my brain works and how the process works best for me. Right. Well, given your success of getting these two novels published, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Um, I would say just always look for ways to get better. Um, like I said, it was 10 years between when I declared myself a writer and when my first book came out. Um, I tried to find a literary agent for two novels before, you know, finding one with my third. And it was just, you know, it was an extremely frustrating process at times because people are just being like, no, no, no. And you're hearing those no's as you're not good enough. Your writing's not good enough. Um, but for me, I just found that every time someone said no, I found a way to make my writing stronger. Um, and it was that sense of just getting incrementally stronger as a writer and, you know, with each manuscript, that no was a little later in the process. Like with my practice novel number one, I think maybe one or two agents even agreed to read it. And then practice novel number two, a good number of agents agreed to read the book, but then there were just no takers from there. So it was this sense of I'm getting closer to the yes. Um, and like I said, the key for me was just learning how to interpret feedback. So I guess my advice would be, you know, just always strive to be getting better and finding ways to make your writing stronger. Um, and that might come in the form of, you know, really examining books you love to see what you love about them so much. Like what does the writer do that really draws you in and kind of studying their technique. And likewise, if a book doesn't click for you, try and figure out why not um, and what the author's doing that, you know, doesn't, doesn't strike a chord with you so you can kind of avoid those beats in your own work and just kind of looking at everything from a craft perspective and just trying to get better. So are you working on another novel now? I am. Um, you know, I'm only 20, 30 pages in, um, but it's, you know, I know what it is and I'm, I'm really excited and I'm not quite ready to spill the beans as to sure. topic yet, but yes, I'm working on something new. Great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, so many. Um, I just picked up uh, Survivors by Jane Harper, and I, I haven't started it yet, but she's a suspense writer from Australia who I just adore her writing. So I'm really excited to start that one. Um, I also, I was lucky enough to get my hands on an advanced copy of um, an upcoming Andy Weir novel called Project Hail Mary, um, which was just so much fun. It had kind of all the mathematical, scientific fun of The Martian, but in a different environment with some different twists on kind of that story format. And that one's coming out soon, and I really enjoyed it. That's great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Sure. Um, I would say alexandraoliva.com. My website is the easiest place that has links to all my social media. Um, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, I tend to have more of a, an observer role on social media, but I'm there. And if, you know, someone were to reach out, I'll see it. Um, so that's probably your best bet. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Alexandra Oliva, author of the new novel, Forget Me Not. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Alexandra, thanks for doing this interview. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great. And now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Forget Me Not, written by Alexandra Oliva, narrated by Kirsten Potter, published by Random House Audio, 
and available wherever audiobooks are sold. A woman whose name shouldn't be Linda stands inside the locked front door of her apartment, listening. Footsteps. A neighbor walking. Linda knows her neighbors only from names on lobby mailboxes and glances through the peephole, doesn't care to meet them, can't chance being known. She gives the footsteps enough time to reach the elevator, to press the button, step in, and begin their descent. Then she unlocks the door, exhales the breath she was hiding from the passerby, and steps out onto the hallway's checkered carpet. The carpet doesn't look any different from yesterday, and Linda wonders if it'd feel different beneath her toes if she was barefoot. She was trapped yesterday afternoon, waiting for a vacuum to be turned off and taken to another floor. By the time it was gone, her excursion window had passed. School was out, the evening rush about to begin. And though it's in some ways easier to slip away into a crowd, it makes her skin crawl. The talking, the laughter, the heavy-heeled steps. All these people who don't care who overhears the intimate details of their lives as they blather into their ear cuffs. Even when they aren't talking, they're tapping and typing, creating hashtags for their confessions and trying to make them trend. Linda doesn't understand how anyone can seek out the public eye. Yet every day her social feed bleeds the secrets of strangers, willingly shared. She locks her door, then walks toward the stairwell. She wants to sprint, but that would send the message she's worth looking at. Pushing through the door, she feels a little better. This high up, the stairs are nearly always deserted. Sometimes children dash short distances to visit a friend above or below, but they're loud, echoing creatures, easily avoided. And those old enough to roam are now in school. The stairwell rings only with Linda's footsteps. Still, she pauses to listen at each landing. The casual hello to a stranger, eye contact. She can do it, but it drains her. She can never shake the fear that the person will recognize her the fear of what they might say or do. She thinks of the woman last summer, the disgust in her eyes as she hissed, what did you do with the bones, freak? The glob of spit that hit Linda's window as a hired driver whisked her out of that neighborhood for the last time. Linda exits the stairwell. The lobby attendant is sitting at his desk, a blue leopard print earcuff screaming from his pale ear. Nick. Linda sometimes gets the two white attendants confused, but the earcuff is a dead giveaway. Nick doesn't look at her, and he isn't talking into his earcuff, isn't singing or bobbing his head along to some starlet's vocal fry. He's probably listening to one of the self-help podcasts that are popular. Tips in attention splitting is the one Linda keeps seeing mentioned on Social Hub. T-A-S, tips for maximum efficiency, or taste me's. Layers of acronyms. Linda likes to make up her own meanings. She hurries past the attendant, thinking, totally anonymous shitheads tell man everything. She didn't want a doorman building. She didn't want to be in the city at all. Had asked for a small house in the mountains, where it would be just her and the trees, maybe even the occasional fox. But Arthur insisted, it's for the best. That's what Dr. Tambor used to say, and what Arthur still says. They'd been born to this world, so they should know. Just as Linda is about to push her way through the lobby's revolving door, a woman, buckling beneath the weight of a plastic crate, backs into the door from outside. Linda steps aside. The woman with the box is shorter than she is, looks to also be in her mid-twenties, and her skin is dark enough that it's clear she's not Caucasian, 
though Linda can't identify her ethnicity. She often can't distinguish ethnicities. Dr. Tambor told her this made sense, given her isolated background. She compared it to Linda's inability to distinguish among Commonwealth accents, a matter of exposure, no more. But interacting with darker-skinned strangers always sends a special nervousness spiking through her. She worries they can sense this wrongness of hers, an ignorance and curiosity she's learned to never admit to aloud. And Linda is curious about the incoming woman. She's striking. Her black hair is short and spiky, save for a violet-dyed swath that falls across one temple. And even burdened with the box, she moves with a grace and confidence Linda covets. When the woman emerges into the lobby, it's as a conqueror. Her eyes catch Linda's and she chirps, Afternoon. Her irises are the color and pattern of crystallized honey. Linda shifts her gaze to the floor. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.